This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. federal court in Washington decided that uh, Roger Stone was breaking their heart with all of his lies, and they decided to convict him on seven different counts. Among the seven felonies were obstructing the congressional inquiry, lying to investigators under oath, and trying to block the testimony of a witness whose account would have exposed his lies. The jurors deliberated for a little over seven hours before convicting him on all seven counts. Together, these charges carry a maximum prison term of 50 years, although nobody expects Roger Stone to serve a whole lot of time. In fact, there is talk of Donald Trump pardoning him. According to prosecutors, Mr. Stone appealed Mr. Trump for a pardon just before he was convicted using the right-wing operator of the website InfoWars as his proxy. For his part, the president attacked the guilty verdict against Mr. Stone in a tweet, but made no mention of a pardon. Noted the New York Times, the evidence showed that in the months before the 2016 election, Stone strove to obtain emails that Russia had stolen from Democratic computers and funneled to WikiLeaks, which released them at strategic moments timed to damage Hillary Clinton. Said prosecutors, every chance he got, Stone briefed the Trump campaign about whatever he'd picked up about WikiLeaks's plans. But it should be noted that when he told the House committee back in September of 2017 that he, Stone, had never described to anyone involved in the Trump campaign his conversation with an intermediary to WikiLeaks. Roger Stone's trial has called into question Donald Trump's own answers to queries from Robert Mueller, the president who refused to be interviewed by Mueller and agreed to respond to questions only in writing, said he could not recall the specifics of any of the 21 conversations he had had with Roger Stone in the six months prior to the election. Roger Stone is now the sixth former Donald Trump aide to be convicted in cases stemming from the investigation by special counsel Robert Mueller into Russia's interference in the 2016 election. Stone was not helped by uh, the testimony of former Trump campaign officials Rick Gates and Stephen Bannon. In one of the trial's most revealing moments, Gates recounted a July 31, 2016 phone call between Mr. Stone and Mr. Trump. This is just days after WikiLeaks had released a trove of emails embarrassing the Clinton campaign. As soon as he hung up with Mr. Stone, Gates testified Trump declared that more information was coming, an apparent reference to future releases from WikiLeaks that would rattle his political rival. And of course, future releases would rattle his political rival, Hillary Clinton. Noted the New York Times, Mr. Stone joins a notable list of former Trump aides who either pled guilty or were convicted of federal crimes in cases stemming from Robert Mueller's work. These include Mr. Gates, Michael Flynn, the former National Security Advisor, Michael Cohn, the president's longtime fixer, 
George Papadopoulos, the former Trump campaign aide, and Paul Manafort, Mr. Trump's former campaign manager and Roger Stone's one-time partner in a political consulting firm. The Times noted that for decades, Roger J. Stone Jr. played politics as a kind of performance art, starring himself as a professional lord of mischief, as a friend once called him. He tossed bombs and spun tales from the political periphery with no real reckoning, burnishing a reputation as a dirty trickster. Well, last Friday, a reckoning arrived, the consequence of his effort to sabotage a congressional investigation that threatened his longtime friend, President Trump. We shall see where this all leads. If you're making a book on this, you can get at least three to one odds from Mr. McMillan that Trump will pardon Stone. Yeah, I think it is about three to one in favor of, but I'm not laying any money down. And listeners, we advise you too to, whenever possible, be very cautious in your gambling. A friend of mine dropped by this weekend on his way down to see the 49ers Arizona Cardinals game at Levi Stadium. He mentioned that his cousin had worked in Vegas and knew the insides and outsides of the life, uh, of the gambling life that Vegas uh, is built upon. I I pointed out to him that we interviewed a a wonderful guest on this program, author Jay Rankin, about his book, Under the Neon Sky. My uh, friend Jerry was, was pretty sure that his cousin no doubt knew Jay Rankin since they both were at the MGM at about the same time. I uh, would await some follow-up on that. As it turned out, I received an invitation to see that game at Levi's Stadium last Sunday, and I've not been to an actual 49er game for, well, decades now, so that was a treat. Although I got to tell you, after watching that Monday night game uh, with Seattle and this and being there in the stadium in this game with Arizona, I don't think I can take all this nail-biting that can take place in a professional football game. Arizona was beating the hell out of the men in red, or or so it seemed. In the last minute of the game, the boys were able to pull it out, down 26 to 23. They found their way into the end zone and went up 30 to 26. Arizona got the ball with like 31 seconds to go and of course had to go, you know, 70, 80 yards down the field to win the game. They made a couple passes, I think got a first down, but found themselves with literally two seconds on the clock and something like, you know, 80 yards of real estate to travel. In a slightly prophetic moment, I said, the Cardinals are going to have to do a Cal Bears. Those of you who are not football fans or perhaps not aware of the fact that during the Cal-Stanford game back in 1982 with basically the clock running out, the Cal Bears did something like seven laterals across the field which by that point saw the Stanford band already out on the playing field. One of the Cal Bear players legendarily knocked the trombone player on his fanny as he dove into the end zone and won the game for Cal. Well, it was going to take a miracle like that for the Cardinals, but <laughs> they tried it. They started lateraling the ball. But on a, like the third lateral, they lost control. A 49er scooped it up and ran into the end zone. Now, if you are a gambling person... He would realize that at this point, Arizona had covered the spread. They were 7-10 to 10 point underdogs. And with two seconds left on the clock, they were only down by four. But what do you know? A 49er dives in the end zone. They lose the game 36-26, to 26, 10 points. Meaning those Las Vegas bookmakers now had to pay up. Stepping outside the stadium, Jerry assured me that he thought he could hear the groans all the way from Vegas. 
Anyway, I feel like jumping into the good, the bad, and the ugly, so let's do it. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for modern vampires with the news that Ambrosia, a Silicon Valley startup, has resumed selling transfusions of blood plasma from young donors to wealthy, aging customers hoping to reinvigorate themselves. Ambrosia's CEO had temporarily suspended operations after the FDA warned that the transfusions, which cost $8,000 per liter, had, quote, no proven clinical benefit, unquote. It so happened that the week arrived when my friends were visiting from out of town, and I read that item to them and asked if they'd ever seen the episode in Silicon Valley with The Blood Boy. They had never seen the show, so I said, sit down, I think you'll enjoy this, and they did. In episode five of season four, the evil CEO of Huli, a fictional Silicon Valley company, does have a blood boy come in to give him transfusions and make him more vital. So, yes, the TV show didn't make it up. It's actually taking place in Silicon Valley. If you've got $8,000 to pay for a liter, that is. And I'll have more to say about that in a moment. But uh, moving right along with the fact that it was a bad week last week for somebody. In this case, we'd say it was a bad week for... Donald Trump's credibility. And, you know, we we hate to see a thing like that take place. But it turns out that Donald Trump claimed in a speech that his daughter Ivanka had single-handedly created 14 million jobs since 2017. 14 million jobs. Now, official U.S. labor statistics note that since 2017, the United States has added six million new jobs. Thus, according to this senior White House official, her dad, Ivanka deserves credit for a staggering 233% of the jobs created during this period. So I don't know about you, dear listener, but we're a bit skeptical. We don't have degrees in math or anything, but gosh, this, this one doesn't seem to add up. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for Benjamin Schreiber. Benjamin Schreiber is an inmate currently being held as a guest by the folks in the state of Iowa. Schreiber, age 66, is in fact serving a life term for murder. Schreiber recently underwent a health scare wherein his heart apparently stopped beating. He was resuscitated successfully. He then tried to plead before the court that he had now served his life sentence, arguing that his, quote, death, unquote, qualified him for release. The court was unpersuaded. Wrote Judge Amanda Porterfield, Schreiber is either still alive, in which case he must remain in prison, or he is actually dead, in which case this appeal is moot. And as addendum to that item on Silicon Valley, which I alluded to a moment ago, I would like to quote from The New Yorker, which took a look at actor Thomas Middlich, 
the, the primary star of, of Silicon Valley, although I think you might call him the first among equals. In the show that started the final season, season six, which we remarked favorably on a few weeks ago, the fictional Richard Hendricks, founder and CEO of a vexed tech startup called Pied Piper, delivers his own speech on Capitol Hill, very reminiscent of Mark Zuckerberg. Said Richard Hendricks, Facebook owns 80% of mobile social traffic. Google owns 92% of search. And Amazon Web Services is bigger than their next four competitors combined. They track our every move. They monitor every moment in our lives. And they exploit our data for profit. What the world needs, he insists in the program, is, quote, a new democratic decentralized Internet, one where the behavior of companies like this will be impossible forever. In the program, the fictional Pied Piper Company has an algorithm that might make that possible, but unfortunately we don't have that in the real world. The New Yorker noted that in the years that Silicon Valley's been on, engineers have attempted to replicate its data compression algorithm, and others are working on ways to build peer-to-peer networks from the unused capacity of phones, something that happens in the show. Thomas Middelich has found himself investing in tech startups. In his case, businesses focused on staving off climate apocalypse. Also, solar desalination, stem cell-grown leather. Said the actor, identify with the philosophy of smash it. Reassemble it, he said. I've met some genuine people trying to help the planet. They see a problem and a way of fixing it. Surrounding them are these Machiavellian corporate giants like Vanderbilts and Carnegie's of our day. Their forward-facing PR is, we're good guys. And in the end, they're absolutely not. But the magazine asked him, would he invest in a revamped internet like the one Hendrix once on the show? Thomas Middelich grinned and said, a decentralized, non-monetized internet? How am I going to get a return on my investment? And in other Donald Trump-related news, we have this. President Trump has admitted to misusing his charity's funds, he did that last week, and agreed to pay $2 million in damages. Settling a lawsuit with New York State, the president acknowledged using Trump Foundation funds on his businesses and trying to buy an autographed Tim Tebow football helmet and a $10,000 portrait of himself that was hung at his Doral, Florida golf resort. The foundation raised $2.8 million at a supposed veterans fundraiser in 2016, which Trump illegally diverted to his campaign. Trump agreed to disperse the foundation's remaining $1.8 million to eight charities and follow restrictions in future charitable work, such as submitting to audits. Trump himself has donated little to his own foundation in recent years and donated nothing from 2009 to 2015. All right, we promised on this program a couple of weeks ago that we would uh, talk to our favorite travel agent, Stan Godwin. Stan is what used to be referred to as a China hand. He's been there recently and has as a report on some of what he's seen that I think we're going to find interesting. So it's my pleasure to, to be able to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Stan Godwin. Thank you very much. Good to speak to you. Tell me what you know about what's going on over there because we've talked about it in this program, but you've experienced it firsthand. Well, what what really struck me on my last trip over is just how much the automation in terms of payment, making reservations or everything sort of exposes everybody to the the possibility or the probability of being tracked. Um, As you may or may not be aware, cash is almost dead in China, and everybody pays for everything 
with their uh, either Alipay or WeChat accounts, which are all tied into their cell phones. So, for example, uh, we went to a museum, a friend of mine and I, and when we got to the museum, he walked up to the front counter. They have a QR code posted on the window of the uh, ticket office. You scan your phone, or you use your phone to scan the QR code. You immediately get a response back from the ticket office saying, yes, everything's good here, is how much you're spending. You click OK, and then when he went into the museum, all he did was just scan his phone onto the entrance, which seems terribly convenient. You know, no cash, you know, it's just coming directly out of your, your, your preset prepay account. But it occurs to me that if you're doing this for everything, that it's pretty easy for, you know, somebody to track down your digital footprint of what you've been doing, where you've been going, what you've been buying. If you can't do anything anonymously, if everything you're doing, every transaction you're doing financially is known about and can be tracked. We stopped for a, a bowl of noodles in the street market, <laughs> and the street noodle vendor had a QR code. <laughs> so you, you know, so you know, they, could, they could not only know where you ate your lunch, but they could theoretically know what you had for lunch. And what about beggars? I, I heard that beggars are actually, yeah, you, there's a way you can, you can pay them using I your phone also. I did not see that. I did not know of that firsthand, but, you know, uh, it wouldn't surprise me. But, you know, what, what, you know the, 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 the extent of it, you know, again, kind of caught me off guard. I was in China a couple years ago talking to people in um, southern China in the province of Guizhou, and they were very proud of the university there. Uh, or some of the universities are establishing big research centers in big data. And I wasn't really quite sure what to make of the term big data. You know, I'd heard it before, but, you know, they're dumping millions and millions of dollars into these research centers to establish the ability to crunch just phenomenal amounts of data. So, again, you know, that that's in and of itself a fine thing. But um, when you start thinking about it again, like for again, same guy and I, were uh, uh, we took a train to uh, go from one city to another. Or you go to the train station, I, as a foreigner, paid cash for my ticket. Now it had my passport number and my name on it. But, um, you know, so they could track me, but that didn't really, you know, that, that doesn't surprise me too much. But all that my friend Alex did was he had made the reservation online on his phone while he was sitting there, paid for it using his Alipay account, and then when he goes up to get on the train, again, all he did was just scan his phone on the uh, entrance. And lo and behold, up pops his picture in the little screen there. His picture. His picture, which is on his ID card. Uh-huh. So they could look at his picture, look at his ID card, verify him, and off he went. Again, you know, that in and of itself, it's a nice thing. It's simple. You know, it just, you know, you get from point A to point B without having to carry around a bunch of cash and worry about getting hacked. The well, level yeah. of tracking of your ability is, is, I find, somewhat disturbing. You're having convenience at, at the expense of, of being unable to conduct a, a transaction that's anonymous. I mean, everything that, literally everything that you do is, enter, is being entered into that big data stream. Well, and you know, like when we were on the train, they, they were doing these announcements, and they were in Chinese. It was funny, because English announcements said, don't smoke on the train. Uh-huh. The announcement in Chinese, and why does a rural chain, a train going between two smaller cities in China have announcements in English? I don't know, but they do. Uh-huh. But then the announcement in Chinese came on and said, you know, don't smoke on the train. If you do smoke on the train, the fine is up to whatever the amount was, and six months that you're not allowed to access the train. And I asked Alex how that happens, and he goes, well, you have to show your ID card to get on the train, and if you're blacklisted, you can't get on the train. So, it, <laughs> Well, that's, that, know, that'll it, cut down on the smoking, I guess. No, I just was reading an article this morning. Um, I read the People's Daily online. It's, uh, it's kind of a weird thing, but I do. And this is the government mouthpiece newspaper, and they sure. had an article today 
talking about facial recognition technology being used by the subway system in the city of Zhengzhou, where if you agree to link your online payment account to the facial recognition software, you don't have to pay to get on the subway. You just walk through the station, go through the gate, and get on the train. Convenient, right? So facial recognition technology then scans who you are, debits your account for your subway fare, but you don't have to do anything but walk through the gate. Well, I, I've heard, Stan, that you know the biometrics and the facial recognition technology has gone so far that in China you just you walk up and show your face and you're admitted. I mean, yeah, exactly. you don't even need it. You don't even need a phone. Correct. Yeah, as long as it's linked to your online payment account, and again, whatever, with nobody paying for anything in cash. Uh, again, it's it's all pitched as convenience, and the vast majority of people I know in China, you know, they're a little bit skeptical about it. But, you know, they accept it as, you know, uh, as a way of convenience because, you know, they've had a lot of problems with counterfeiting money and, you know, it's a, a lot of scams and, involving cash and such. So, you know, they're, you know, they're pitching it all as a way of doing it with cash to make everybody's life more convenient. Computer systems are never gotten around, so that, that sounds foolproof. <laughs> you know, everybody in China uses a social website called uh, WeChat. Yeah, tell, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, we, WeChat is the third largest social media site in the world uh, after um, Facebook and YouTube, well over a billion users, but they're almost all in China. And it's similar, very similar to, you know, to the other social medias. You, know, you use it for communicating with friends. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, you can post pictures. Uh, you know, you have various groups that, you know, you, you subscribe to and text back and forth and message and all that. And it's great. I mean, it's it's very convenient. I have a WeChat account. Um, you know, the very you know almost the third thing that anybody says to you in a conversation is, "Hey, can I add my WeChat?" And if you say yes, all you do is you display your QR code. They scan your QR code with their phone, and you're you're connected on WeChat. Wow. The interesting thing, though, is that um, the company that owns WeChat, which is, I believe is Tencent, is very much compliant with the Chinese government. Um, there is an understanding among all the people in China that WeChat is can be and is monitored by the uh, you know the same people that run the Great Firewall of China, right? And make sure that they you know make sure that you're not you know, promoting overthrow of the government or anything to that effect. But it's so pervasive in society that you really can't function in China now without having a WeChat account. Well, I've and heard that not only is cash an issue that the government was. Cash is becoming so scarce that foreigners that go over there and expect to buy things with cash, and some instances bump up against uh, vendors that won't sell them anything. The government has more or less said, "No, no, you have to take this this money from foreigners." Or so I've heard. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is that is just as a practical matter. Yes, I mean I have yet to run into it. I'll go into a convenience store at a Chinese train station to buy a coke and pull on my wallet and hand them cash, and they kind of look at me funny. They do. But now the um, another article I read recently says that due to pressure from outside sources, it is now going to be possible to to tie a foreign credit card to the Alipay or WeChat Pay systems. So you'll be able to you know link a, link your credit card to a WeChat Pay while you're in China and pay with that. Because I've heard that credit cards are also an issue. If you go over there with a credit card and I guess you're not linked up, well, China never really was a credit card society. I mean, they never got to the point where we are where credit cards were you know almost universally expe- accepted. I mean, they kind of went straight from cash to Alipay or WeChat Pay. Huh. Um, you know, credit cards were just starting to become a more common thing maybe 10 years ago. And, you know, you go to a nice restaurant and you could pay with your credit card. But I would guess that the vast majority of people in China never had credit cards. China totally skipped landlines on phones. They went straight from nobody having a phone to everybody having a cell phone. <laughs> 
how do you wire 1.3 billion people that have phones in their houses? Well, you know, you don't. You just go straight for towers and give everybody a cell phone. Well, Stan, this whole thing uh, disturbs me. I know a lot of people would think this is how we ought to do things right here in America. I know I know many people that talk about how proud they are. They don't never pay any cash. And they're using their phone mm-hmm. for everything, and they just think yeah. it's great. But a lot of civil libertarians mm-hmm. would, would point out that if through this big data stream, the government is able to know exactly what you're doing, where you are, et cetera, et cetera, who you're hanging out with, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. this is unprecedented surveillance ability that can allow them to... Um, Let's just say meddle in the lives of people whose activities they find disturbing. Yes, and you know the article I was reading about the uh, uh, subway system today. You know the person they were actually this was interesting. This was a Chinese publication, but the person that they were interviewing said was you know questioning whether she thought this was a really good idea, and she expressed concerns about the privacy of her data. You know we are all about privacy of data. You know the, the whole the whole issue of Facebook being careless with data and all is is a big deal. Yes, I've never heard anybody in China say they're really concerned about the privacy of their data. I think there's just sort of an understanding that your data is not private. Again, it's a different society. I mean, you know, it never has been a society where personal privacy from government supervision is an expectation. Right. Back in the in the days of the Cultural Revolution, there were neighborhood committees where you had a, you know, the neighborhood busybody watched everything you did and reported to the local committee. Right, you're being you're ratted out by your neighbors as to he yeah, yeah I mean, exactly. It's, it's very 1984ish, and yet and yet in the 21st century, I mean. <laughs> I mean, 1984 doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what we're talking about in the ability to keep track of people. It is and it isn't, because the, the interesting thing is is that, again, yeah, a lot of friends in China spend a lot of time there. Nobody that I know well expresses any serious concern about this. They're all in favor of the, the convenience and the ease of it, and, you know, the kind of the comeback to any sort of questions about it. Well, if you don't have anything to hide, then what are you worried about? It's just a different attitude towards being watched. And I guess back in the day, you know, when there was, you know, one billion people in the country, there was a limit to how much people practically could watch everybody. But now, sure, with the big data sure. and the, you know, the facial recognition technology and, you know, the fact that you basically can... You know, you do conduct all your business with your account on your cell phone. It really is, you know, a change in the, um, you know, the, the level to which people can be monitored. I've seen this with Hong Kong, where the first thing that, you know, that one of the first things the government did was to try to crack down was try to ban people wearing masks so that, you know, it would affect the uh, facial recognition technology. I've heard about that. I, I do wonder also that, like, since apparently facial technology is not that hard to thwart if you put makeup on or change the change, you put a line on your face that alters yeah, the numbers. Yeah, I, I, I'm not an expert on yeah, that. I, I, I not suspect either. that it's not as accurate as you as as we might be led to believe. It's a piece of the overall picture. Certainly a powerful tool. Tool. You know, I mean, I've heard the story, and I'm not entirely sure if it's true or not, but the the story has been circulating around among the Chinese hands for a while that. Uh, in one of the southern Chinese cities, they have facial recognition cameras posted on the uh, uh, street corners. If you jaywalk, they just take a picture of you, run it through the facial recognition tanner, scanner, and then text you a fine. Wow. Yeah, your phone pops up, hey, you've just been deducted 20 UN for jaywalking. Wow. And I suppose you can't argue with it. Anybody's ever yeah, argued with the Chinese bureaucracy. Yeah, good, good luck with that. Pretty slim. I mentioned this program a couple of weeks ago. I went over and had a meal in uh, I guess, Santa Rosa, I guess it was, and I was asked by my phone how I liked uh, the restaurant, which they named. I mean, they knew that I'd spent time there. I mean, I didn't tell the phone, I'm, hey, I'm, I'm going to go have a have some sushi over here, uh, but yet oh, yeah. this yeah. happens all the time. Now, they're asking me how I liked the restaurant 
that I was just at, and I, I just right. find this very disturbing. I'm finding that now. I'm in the, you know, in, in the making some changes in my life right now, and some of the stuff that pops up on my advertising feeds is is somewhat interesting. And you know, I spend a lot of time <laughs> googling on my own, uh-huh. you know, looking for information for clients. And you know, and, and next thing I know, it's asking me, you know, what I like the the, the you know, like uh, to find the best airfares to you know to Madrid or whatever, which I'm not doing for myself, but. Whoever's monitoring my data must think I'm totally crazy. Well, Stan, we appreciate uh, your first-hand reporting for what is going on mm-hmm. over there. We've talked about it on this show, but you've, you've now experienced it. And uh, we'll be talking about it again in the future. And uh, exactly. if you have some updates along the way, well, we'll, we'll be happy to hear them. Well, certainly. I'll probably be going back sometime early next year, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep you posted. So. All right, fantastic. Thank you, sir. Thank you, and we'll talk about some other travel-related stuff because uh, because we like we like to advocate travel on this program, and I I know that's mm-hmm. right up your alley. Sounds good, sir. Thank All you. All righty. All right, we do advocate traveling, but we suggest you not go away from the speaker for at least the next half an hour. We'll take a short break. <laughs> 